as you're sitting down, however you access your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today. And if you don't have your Bibles or are not familiar, we're looking that up. Most of the scripture will be on the screens behind us today. Um, many of you I know in here well. Many of you um, maybe met for the first time today or we're at different levels in our relationship. But one thing I know about everybody in here, we're probably at different points in our connection with Jesus and understanding who Jesus is and who this character who lived over 2,000 years ago, why do we gather in a room in a school auditorium here in New York City to even continue to talk about him and to continue to have this conversation? For some of us, uh, this is a moment in our week that we long for and we're drawn to, and we're like, I can't wait to have this moment where we come together and we experience the body of Christ, the unity of Christ together. For some in here, it may be like, I still feel like I'm coming out of obligation. Like I, there's some guilt that's pushing me like I have to do this so somebody doesn't look down on me or I, I'm viewed a different way. For some of you, maybe it's an investigation. It's, it's intrigued you and you're trying to figure out what the next step is. But the beauty of this, of what we do every Sunday here, is it can be all of that for all of us because Jesus was all of that for all of us. As we get to encounter this man who lived 2,000 years ago, and we study this book of Mark that lays out who he was, what his intentions were, and now as we look more deeply at his teachings, we get this picture of a man who was there for everyone. He spent time with the cream of the crop, the upper echelon of people, the people that society thought were beautiful and magnificent and powerful. He spent time with his friends. He spent time with new people, getting to know new people and building new relationships. He spent time with people that nobody else wanted to spend time with. He was a man of of all people, a man of all seasons, a man who who could connect with anybody if they were willing to sit down and have a conversation with him. And that's what I love about studying this book of Mark, is that we're getting to walk alongside of this man again through these stories of experiencing life with Jesus. And as we look at his teachings, the amazing thing is this. Jesus typically did not teach in a lecture setting like I'm doing right now. He would often teach in the synagogue, and he did that on occasion. But most of the time, Jesus taught through the normal routines of life. Whatever happened that week, whatever happened in that moment, Jesus would stop and say, let's talk about it. Let's learn from this. Jesus was not working through a curriculum He was working through life with his disciples. And that's what we get to hold on to as well, is a man and his teachings who walk through life with us no matter what we are doing. I told you last week about a couple of uh, Sunday school teachers I had growing up. One was really good and one was uh, not so good. I'll try to be nice. And then uh, then this week I want to tell you, when I was in college, I went to school at Auburn in uh, Auburn, Alabama, and... uh, we lost football yesterday. Nobody in the North cares about that, which is fine when you lose. So, uh, but I remember my senior year, I had two teachers. One teacher, I had, uh, for reasons we won't completely get into today, I had failed History 101 twice as a freshman. And uh, mainly because I, I did not go to class. It was not because uh, my mental capacity, I just chose lots of different reasons. But anyway, my senior year, I had to take History 101 to graduate. And we go to class, and I'm in this class, and I can't remember her name. I can remember her, though. She was at the front of the room, and we were in a room of probably 200 people. And as she started talking, 
this is how she would teach. She, was, she wasn't that boring, but she would use um about every three words. She'd be like, and as we are um, looking at the, uh, the battle of, um, and I'm like, that's all I've been hearing. Now, this, um, and so my friend that was in the class with me, we timed how long it would take her to say um, and we figured it was about a third of a second. And so then we counted how many times she said um in one class. So you could tell we were really engaged with uh, what she was teaching. And then we took that and multiplied it by the number of days that we had in class. And we realized that she wasted over two and a half days of class just saying um. And so you know what we did? We took two and a half days off. We were like, we're, we're not going to come. That was like all I could think about was um, 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 I, I passed the class. I graduated. But, uh, but that same year, I had a teacher named Dr. Brinson. Dr. Susan Brinson, and I remember her first name for a reason. Because when I sat down in this class, this was, class was called Media Law, and I, my undergrad was in a TV film production, and I had to take this class. And Dr. Brinson said, she sat us down, and she said, guess what? I have never, or I've only, in the whole history of this class, I've only had three people ever make an A in my class. You will not make an A in here. And she said, if you do, you will have the distinct privilege of not calling me Dr. Brinson. You may call me Susan. And I was like, all right, she put a challenge out in front of me. And, like, I, I took this up, and, man, I put everything I had into this class. And I don't know how many people I have since then, but I was the fourth person in that class who made an A. And that's why, to this day, I can remember that her first name was Susan because for the rest of my time, I got to call her Susan. Now, if I was around other people, I still called her Dr. Brinson. But she's one of my favorite college teachers. Anytime she offered a class, I took it because she set the bar high. She challenged me to think in different ways. She used different teaching techniques. But she, here's what she did. She made sure I understood what I was learning in a way that I could use it. And I love, as I look back at these teachers, how one had one impact on my life of very demotivating and another one really motivating me. This is what Jesus does. He's a very motivating teacher. He takes us in the moments of our lives and brings truth and drops them right in amongst us. And this is where we find in chapter 10. Jesus continues his teaching, and he does so here by drawing some truths from what the culture viewed at that time as very unworthy sources. He didn't go to the experts. He didn't go to those that were viewed as religious or cultural leaders. He actually draws lessons from those that the culture said aren't really that important. And chapter 10 is this odd grouping of stories. Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce. People are bringing babies to him to bless him. A rich man asks him what it would take to follow him. Jesus talks about dying again. James and John are some of his disciples, and they're still trying to one-up one another. And this blind beggar accosts Jesus on his way to Jericho. It's this weird grouping of stories, and on the surface, they really don't seem to fit together. So maybe Mark just had this group of stories. He's like, these don't fit anywhere. Maybe I'll just throw them into chapter 10. Or maybe the editors of the Bible, when they were putting the, the numbers in, I don't know if he really, like Mark did not, when he wrote this, he didn't put like, chapter 10. Those are like put in much later. Maybe the editors made the breaks in the wrong place. The truth is, when we look at it, we're, we're like, what, why are all these stories together? But if we look beneath the surface, and we look at this collection of stories the way a first century person living around Jerusalem in that time would have read them, we will see a distinct thread that plays out through each of these encounters. And we'll see the wisdom of Jesus on display. There are three encounters that I want us to look at today. 
And each one of these encounters, we see Jesus elevate and draw wisdom from a group of people in society that society as a whole in that day found little value in. To begin with, Jesus' question and test are tested, as we will see, about the view of divorce. And what Jesus does here is he actually, while he answers the question, he pushes back on the way that women were being treated as a commodity instead of an equal heir of God's grace and God's love. And then there are women that were bringing their children to Jesus to simply be touched and to be healed and blessed by him. And the disciples that had already forgotten a recent teaching of his that said, let the children come to me, he rebu- their disciples rebuked them and pushed them away and say, don't bring the babies near Jesus. Don't bring the kids near him. And when Jesus says that he reminds everyone that how important it is to approach the kingdom like a child in need of a blessing and need of hope in our lives. And then finally, Jesus encounters two men, two very different stations of life, one very rich, great status and wealth, and one a blind beggar who's rebuked by the disciples. And Jesus shows you how status does not grant you access to him, but instead it's blind faith that often gives you access to him. Jesus turns the world on its head. He elevates the role of women, calls his followers to act like children, and grants grace to a beggar instead of trying to gain influence with the wealthy. Jesus' truth isn't just some revamped, repackaged quotes from other great teachers that he put his own spin on. Instead, it is a new, unique way of thinking. It's thought-provoking, challenging, and life-changing. It is wisdom that will change not only how I act, but how I think. And so let's dive into these three encounters today and see what we can learn from them. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow along however you have your Bible. And it says this. As he left there, where he was teaching before, (coughs) excuse me, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Do you catch that? That was his custom. He would teach. He was a teacher. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, he asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me give you a little background on this before we jump into some of the truths we can grab on this. I want you to notice a few things. First, I want you to understand Jesus did not initiate this conversation. It isn't like Jesus pulled everyone together and said, hey, guys, let me tell you what I think about divorce. I know what you've been thinking. What does Jesus really think about? This is not what Jesus did here. But this is what often people do. Jesus will pull the people will pull this out and said, like, well, this is what Jesus said about divorce. So it's he must have thought it was important enough to talk about. He did not initiate this conversation. But the fact is, he did answer it. And this is important to understand, because even though he does answer the question, that was posed to him, Jesus didn't go around condemning everyone that had been divorced and putting this, what many do, this unforgivable badge on people and saying, oh, you've been divorced, you've been tarnished, you've been broken, something must be wrong with you. Our culture, and even our Christian culture, does a great job of labeling people by their sins, by their brokenness. And saying, well, this is what you are. This is what you are. This is the sin that defines you. 
And this is what I want you to understand. Even though Jesus responds here, Jesus did not initiate this. He, it was not his way to go around and say, let me tell you what I think is wrong about this person, this person, and this person. He didn't put badges of sin on people. He put incredible grace on people. So he approached them. He approached people with grace. And instead, what Jesus does here, instead of actually talking about divorce, do you know what he does? He goes back to the original plan God intended with about a marriage as God is the central figure of their union. The second thing I want you to see here is, in understanding this background, is the Pharisees were actually using this as a trap or a test for Jesus. The, the <coughs> Roman leader in the area at the time was a guy named Herod Antipas, and he ruled uh, the region, and he had actually been involved in a pretty salacious scandal involving divorce. And he had divorced his first wife in order to marry his half-brother's wife. Now, he did this for political, personal, and passionate reasons. And there was a guy who had been preaching against this. And the guy's name was John the Baptist. And John was basically saying, Herod, what you did was wrong. And you know what Herod did to John the Baptist? He had him arrested and eventually killed. And so what were the Pharisees doing here? They thought they had put Jesus in a corner because they had laid a trap for him because he would either have to agree with John and call out Herod and which would make him an enemy of the state, or he'd have to refuse to agree with John and drive a divide between himself and John's followers who had now become his followers. They got Jesus in a corner. So they thought. The other thing we need to understand here is about what the practice of divorce was actually during this time. Historically, this was a time in the world which it's 2,000 years away from us. So it's hard for us to understand conceptually, but the world at that time was actually moving away from the practice of polygamy to the practice of monogamy. And so as they were moving from this practice, that primarily came because of the spread of the Roman Empire. Um, as they were moving away from that, embracing monogamy, often something else came about, and it was actually the practice of divorce. The practice of divorce went through the roof as well, which you think about it. What men were saying was this, you know, if I can't be married to five women at once, if I can only be married to one, when I get tired of this one, I will get rid of her and pick up another one and then another one, and another one. And so it elevated the practice of divorce. And the practice of divorce primarily in this time allowed men to change wives with no other reason than for desire, status, or wealth. If a better offer came along, they picked it. It created an environment where women were used as a commodity, not as a companion. With so many laws, rules, and regulations, a man could find any reason he wanted to have his wife push away. And then he would take a new wife. They would bring along with her a new dowry and a new assets. Jesus detested this practice. And when he was asked about this, he didn't just deal with that. He turned the table on them. He said, let me tell you what it should be, what marriage should be. And what I want us to see today is this is not a restrictive teaching of Jesus. Instead, it's actually an elevating teaching of Jesus specifically toward women. He was freeing women from the practice that was holding them down of divorce at the time. And I want you to see today that Jesus reminds us what marriage should be in this passage. And in this teaching, what I want us to say is, well, I'm married in here. I'm not married in here. The truth is most of us in here, everybody in here has been affected in some way by a marriage relationship, whether it's your parents' marriage, whether it's your own marriage, whether it's a previous marriage, whether it's going to be a future marriage. We all are impacted by that. And so what I want us to do is 
in, the, in a couple minutes here in this part of it, look at some great truths that Jesus teaches us about what marriage should be. One of the key relationships. And what Jesus does is tell us this. And I, I don't know about you, but I used to grow up thinking, you know, God's will is for me to marry this one person. There's one person out there for me. And uh, I'm going to spend most of my young life trying to find that one person. But I had this fear in my life. What if that one person found somebody else before they found, before I found them? And like they didn't know I was out there and they made a wrong choice. And like they're actually married to the wrong person. Like there's one person God's will had for me to marry and like their wrong choice like threw everybody off. They married the wrong person. So whoever that person was supposed to marry is going to be married to the wrong person now. I'm going to have to marry the wrong person. Like the whole world's just falling apart because one person made wrong, one wrong decision. Like I actually had these thoughts as like a junior and senior in high school because I was like taught growing up like there's that one person out there for you. There you you're going to find them. And we were all about the who. Marriage was always about the who you will marry. Can I say we get the letters just a little bit wrong? It isn't about the who you marry. It is about how you marry. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. How you marry is most important. Our marriage relationships will either be constructive or destructive in our lives. And most marriages don't fail because we married the wrong person. They married because we, we married with the wrong perspective. And so let's look at a few things that Jesus says here. First of all, in verse 6, he says this, that he created us from the beginning to marry. To, to not, not that you have to be married, but he created marriage from the beginning. Marriage is a sacred act, not an act of servitude. It is not an act of servitude. It is a sacred bond, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. But when marriage turns into simply expecting the other person to complete me instead of compliment me, or to serve me instead of strengthening me, or to accommodate me instead of holding me accountable, then the sacred bonds turn into servant chains. And we end up feeling like we're bound to something we never wanted. The truth is, most of us don't walk into marriage thinking this way. They don't want to put my spouse into some kind of servitude toward me. But we fall into these ways because we don't pursue the sacred marriage, sacred nature of marriage. We forget that God created it this way. It was a gift. Our spouse is a gift given to us, a cherished friend, a trustworthy companion, a passionate lover, an anchor of hope, and a catalyst for growth. God has given us that. It is a gift, a sacred gift. And the Pharisees were just wanting to know, how do we get rid of this? What do you think about divorce? How can we separate this? And Jesus was like, no. We've got to be talking about strengthening, not separating. Second thing I want you to see is this. Marriage is uniting. It is not using each other. Verse 8 talks about this. It talks about two becoming one. And this is the heart of marriage. God's plan was to create something completely new. A new us, not a better me. Now, I'll be honest. I got, Katie and I got married. I was 21. She was 20. We were young, dumb, and, I mean, we're still a little bit that way, but not young anymore. But, um... But, like, we didn't, I don't know if I knew what we were getting into. I don't know that anybody had taught me all this stuff, things. And, but I, like, I mean, I thought this is going to be great. But I want to tell you what I was really thinking. This is going to be great for me. Like, I got a beautiful wife. Man, this is going to be fun. This is going to be amazing. I got somebody to do stuff with all the time now. Like, it's going to be amazing, right? And it was. 
But I learned very quickly, if I was ever, if I was the only winner in our marriage, and Katie was the regular loser in our marriage, guess who felt the brunt of the loss? It wasn't just her. It was us. Both of us. And God taught me and others taught me very quickly. The biggest part of success in marriage is the uniting part of it. Not about being better me or better her, but being a better us together. When we unite with our spouse, we work together for new dreams, new plans, new agendas. It's not about her supporting me or me just supporting her. It's about us supporting what God has drawn us to together. The third thing I want you to see about marriage is this. Marriage should be sustaining, not suffocating. Verse 9 talks about that no one should separate what God has joined. The sacred union that unites two people into one is designed to enrich our lives, not stifle our joy and our happiness. God's design for the relationship, the marriage relationship, catch this, was not to blossom at its birth, but actually to blossom at its culmination. So many people look back on the first few years of their marriage as like those were the good old days, and now we just got to survive. We just got to make it to the end. That's not the way God designed this. God designed the, the first part, maybe fun, energetic, exciting, but for them, for it to cultivate in this beautiful, beautiful picture, not at the first years, but at the last few years. Yet too often we turn marriage into something that we think limits us, suffocates us. We refer to our partners as someone that keeps us from what we really want to do or who we really want to be. And this usually happens when we have forgotten the sacred nature and the uniting nature of marriage. We start to separate and go our own way. The truth is this. Most merits aren't ruined by someone on the outside that separated one spouse from the other. They're actually ruined because one spouse separated themselves from the other on the inside. And God says, don't do this. Don't do this. Now, as he talked about this this morning and just a few verses, this reminder of what marriage is, what he was actually doing was painting a broader picture. Not just for the married couples that were around there, not just for the married couples that are in here this morning, but these truths are truths that happen in any relationship. Relationships should sustain us, not suffocate us. They should unite us. We should find ways to make things a win-win for each other instead of a win-lose for one another. should find ways that we find God in this relationship instead of creating servants of one another to, to only be used by each other. This is not a negative teaching that is so often drawn out of Mark chapter 10 of, of Jesus saying, you know, you can't get divorced, things like that. What Jesus is pushing back to is this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's original plan of community. Do you know what we're equated to in the Bible, the followers of Christ? We're equated to his bride, to this beautiful marriage. And these principles are principles of what it means to follow Christ as well. Follow Christ shouldn't be suffocating. It's not about just being a servant. It's not about just doing things. It is about sustaining in this uniting relationship that will open us up to this very sacred nature of life. I imagine if there were women in the room there, they were probably all like nodding their heads. Like, yeah, that's right, because that was not the culture of that day. And this teaching was so foreign to them, it was like flipping the world literally on his head. And like, I should treat my wife this way? I should treat that woman this way? But what if I grow tired of her? And Jesus is saying, no, that's, we don't even get to look at it that way. We are two equal people together.
Next encounter that we have is this. Mark 10, verse 13. We jump down and we read this. And it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in the arms and he blessed them and laid hands on them. A little background on here. We talked last week about how children really had no social value in that, in that culture of that day. Very different from our culture today. A person's value didn't kick in until they were able to contribute to society versus taking from it. And this is what made most children not second-class citizens, but even third-class citizens. And verse 14 says, when Jesus saw people treating children like this, he had a response. And that response, it says he was indignant. That word indignant means this, is that his spirit was grieved. It was in pain at the idea that those closest to him would rebuke those that tried to bring children into his presence. This type of action and feeling demanded a response and a teaching from Jesus. And what Jesus taught them here, again, was culturally shifting. He said, if you want to receive the kingdom of heaven, you have to come as a child. That would have been so foreign to any adult in that society to revert back to a childish nature. And what he was saying is this. You have to come as that you have nothing to offer. Nothing. You weren't being picked on God's team because of your immense talents, your abilities, because of your proven track record. No, you were received into the kingdom out of God's complete charity and through adoption. Not because of what we could offer, but we were chosen. What does it mean to come to the kingdom as a child? We've all experienced childhood. Some of us are a little farther away from it than others, and so maybe we've forgotten what it means to be a child. And so when I think about a child-like approach to things, there were three things that immediately come to my mind, and I think they fit here. And the first is this, is we should embrace the innocence of a child. The innocence of a child. Children don't understand how things work. They'll believe almost anything, right? They have almost unlimited faith. I remember when we were, uh, when the kids were growing up, we were in the car, and uh, if you have a car, they used to have this thing where you'd pull the lights on. Now it's all different. But you'd pull the lights on. It was actually a lever. You'd pull, the headlights would come on, and then you could twist it, and the interior lights would come on. Anybody track them to me? Do you remember that? Some, like some of, you, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just push a button down. Well, we would do this thing where Katie would like, we had this magic thing in the car where if we clapped or snapped our fingers, the lights would come on. And uh, so Katie would snap her fingers, and I would reach down without the kids seeing, and I would make the lights come on. She would snap it, and it would go off. And then kids were like, oh, my gosh, what is this? this is a, and then they would, they would try it, right? They'd be like, snap. And they're like, no, it was wrong snap, you know. And, and they would believe anything. I mean, we did this over and over with our kids. Like, this wasn't just a, what, do you remember it, PJ? Do you remember? And, uh, I mean, it goes back to my childhood. I remember my parents, that we had this car growing up. It was, my parents loved Cadillacs growing up, like these wells of a car. I mean, they were huge. They even had fins on the back. And uh, in the back were these two lights that would light up any time my dad hit the brakes. I didn't know they lit up because he hit the brakes. What they told us was if we were messing around in the back seat, that light would come on and let them know that we were misbehaving in the back. And so, like, my brother and I would be back there, and, 
course, my dad would see us through the rear view mirror, which we had no clue they could even see us. And like, he would tap the brakes with like, oh, you know, and we'd sit down and, and we would believe anything. Children believe anything. And the truth is this, as we grow older, we lose our innocence. And we too often think we lack faith because we have to have an explanation. And we say, explain this to me. The truth is this. When we can explain everything, we don't need faith. You don't. If you can explain everything that's happening in your life, every reason that you're going through something, and you can explain every aspect of who God is, you don't need faith. You've got to figure it out. Come down here and teach us all. We all need faith. We need to remember that there are things in this life we will go through. There are trials we will face that we will not understand. I won't comprehend it. I just have to trust. I have to trust. The second thing I thought about children is this, is that we should embrace the excitement of a child. Children are easily excited. They're easily overwhelmed. And they, they see the wonder in very simple things. I'm talking about our kids. I, wonder, I, I used to do this thing. Maybe your parents did where they'd come up and like steal your nose. You remember that? Anybody? Everybody's looking at me like, Okay, hopefully. <laughs> but you and dad are like, hey, I got your nose. And I remember Natalie one time was like, she got in tears. She was like, dad, please give me my nose back. Like, I was like, no, I, got, I, was, I, was, I finally did give it back to her. But, uh, <laughs> but she, I mean, she thought I had her, that she was so overwhelmed. Yeah, PJ showed me another one where I could, I could break my finger off, right? You know, like PJ would be like, oh my gosh, how do you, how do, you do that? And there was another one where I would, Say, I can pick you up just by your ears. And I would come and grab them by the ears. Of course, their hands would be on my arms. And so I'd pick them. And they're like, I mean, I'm holding them up. And they're holding on by their arms. Like, Dad, how are you doing this? They were like easily excited and amazed. And Jesus is saying that we should embrace our faith with the excitement of a child. We often become jaded and refuse to see the wonder of God working because we've become overwhelmed with the brokenness of this world. When things fall apart, we lose our early excitement we had for our faith because we think we, everything needs to go our way. There should be no pain, no hurt. And when the pain comes, we let being upset overwhelm our idea of being excited. The third thing about children that I love is this, is we should embrace the dedication of a child. Children are naturally dedicated to their parents. They see what their parents do and they want to copy them. Right? They see where their parents go and they want to follow them. I mean, if you have a child, you know that you go into another room and they're like, they just follow you. They don't know what you're doing, where you're going, or what you're about. They just want to be where you are. They just follow you. You start getting something to eat, what do they want? They want to eat the same thing. They just copy you. They have this natural blind obedience because they have an unwavering trust. And we look at children as they grow up, and if they don't get over this, they don't start questioning things. They don't start trusting. They hold back their trust. Then we call them naive and simple. But can I tell you, there is a joy and peace that you and I will never recover in our life once we lose our naiveness and our innocence. When we go back to that, just being able to trust, not having to know, and we can just follow blindly, man, that kind of dedication, this is what Jesus is reminding us to trust God completely, to just be willing to follow him 
wherever he goes and do whatever he does. Jesus wasn't telling us to act like a child all the time, but he was calling us to act like children as we approach the kingdom of God. The last thing I want to end with shortly is this. These last two encounters that Jesus has here that I think are just very telling about the culture of that day and the culture of our day as well. Let me read the first one. It's Mark 10, 17 through 22. It says, Now as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear fault with witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by this saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let's flip the coin and look at another encounter that Jesus had. Scroll down to verse 46. And it says this, And then as he came to Jericho, so this was at the beginning of this journey, now he's at the end of his journey. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. For he cried, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him. And he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you whole. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, we all know the difference in the cultural view of these two men here. A rich man versus a blind beggar. It's easy to see why a rich man has no issue getting to Jesus, while a blind beggar was rebuked for trying to get close to Jesus. A popular teacher, a man of, you know, with great crowds following him, a man of means could easily find his way in front of Jesus. But those without any kind of aspect or forgotten by culture had a tough time. I'm sure the disciples, when they saw this rich man running up to Jesus, they, they got excited. Think of the doors that this guy could open. Think of the things he could do for Jesus, the value he could add. You can even sense in the question that he, got, that he asked Jesus, he said, what must I do to inherit and learn all? What do I need to do? He came to Jesus with the idea that he could do something for Jesus. He could invest in him so that Jesus would open up some doors for him. He was probably genuine and desired to follow Jesus. It just actually cost him too much. How many of us actually fall into that same trap? And we think we've got something to offer Jesus. That if I can just get an audience with him, if I can get before him, like he will see the value that I have in bringing me into his kingdom. But the truth is the blind beggar, on the other hand, <coughs> no one wanted him to bother Jesus. They rebuked him. They tried to keep him away. But when Jesus saw him, he responded, what did this man have to offer Jesus? Nothing. You can see this in the interaction. He said, have mercy on me, Jesus. 
And Jesus said, what can I do for you? This man was desperate for Jesus. Verse 50 is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It says this, when they said that he's calling you come, it said the man throwing off his cloak sprang up and came to Jesus. His cloak was probably his only possession he had. He left everything he had to follow Jesus. The lesson in this two interactions that Jesus taught us is this. Following Jesus isn't about us adding value to him. It's about him adding value to us. Are we living a life trying to accomplish deeds for Jesus? Are we living a life of complete desperation upon him? Look at how both of these encounters ended. The rich man who was willing to do something for Jesus, but wasn't willing to do everything, left sorrowful. But the beggar who couldn't do anything for Jesus, but allowed Jesus to become everything for him, went away content and with a sight. There's a really odd equation that I want us to learn this morning as we close. And it's this, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's one of my, there's a book written with that title, one of my favorite books, but it's such a true, simple thought. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus doesn't need me to add something to him. Jesus doesn't need to add value. Jesus doesn't need anything else for me to experience everything in this life, the fullness of of what it means to come to him as a child, the the relationship aspects in my marriage or other relationships, for me to experience the fullness of every bit of that, to overcome sin and stain in my life, whatever I think is holding me back, here's what you need, Jesus plus nothing. And that's everything. You will have everything if you will seek the wisdom of Jesus. The question I have for you today is this. Will you find, will you look for the wisdom of Jesus? in unexpected places? Will you look for the wisdom of Jesus in unexpected places? Will you follow the unconventional path? Will you follow the unconventional wisdom that Jesus is teaching? Would you allow the truth to penetrate your heart and then act out on a way that you can walk away with new sight and a new contentment? We can follow the old rules, We can ask Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Not really wanting an answer, just wanting him to validate our response and so that we can add value to him. And Jesus says, no. Would you follow the unconventional wisdom? And when you find it, allow it to change and shift your life and walk out of here seeing new things and walking in a new path. We bow your head and close your eyes with me. Fathers, we come today a moment of quiet and stillness at the end of this teaching. And I know as I was reading Mark 10, it was kind of like a roller coaster ride. You go from marriages to children to rich men, poor men, all kinds of different things. God, in this roller coaster ride, you've brought us to a point where you've shown us that you are all we need. Nothing else. I don't need an answer about why my marriage fell apart. I don't need an answer about why my marriage is failing or falling. I don't need an answer about why I can't get married. I don't need an answer about why my children act a certain way or why I'm jaded on this. I don't need an answer to anything. 
I need you. You are the answer. And God, out of that answer, your truth and your wisdom don't just leave us in the mess that we are. God, they move us forward. And God, help us to embrace that today. Help us to come to you as a child. Help us to come with that dedication and that excitement and that innocence. And allow us to walk forward. God, today, but we as a church and we as individuals, when we hear you calling us this morning, would we throw off our cloaks, stand up, and go running after you? Lord, we love you. Thank you for the love that you have shown for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.